Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get the information that actually matters so we can better discern the times we live in. We had some voting. It was election day for 2023. Now, we've talked a lot about 2024. Everybody's looking ahead to the general election, the presidential election, Congress, all that good stuff. But these elections are always important. Lots of school boards, lots of local Things. There was governor races. There was attorney general races. There was um, the entirety of the New York City City Council was up. Things like this. These elections are all important. There's no such thing as an unimportant election. And in fact, the least talked about ones are sometimes the most important. We talk on this program all the time. If you don't know what's going on in your school boards, county commissions, city councils, a lot of those voted on things like, you know, agricultural commissioner or things like this. Those things really, really matter. Make sure you're staying attuned to what's going on locally because the more and more news nationalizes, the more and more folks sometimes overlook that stuff. And that local official and that election that maybe only had a few hundred or a few thousand people vote in it probably has a lot more effect on your day-to-day life than what's going on in Washington, so pay attention to that. But an election Tuesday means it's going to be an overreaction Wednesday and everybody's reacting. Here's something I want to talk about with this. And we posted a lot of these results at Ordinary-Times.com. You can go there, look at them, hash it out with the commentariat and all that good stuff. But I want to look big picture for a moment. This is a good time to calibrate your media feeds, your social media feeds, your news media feeds, how you intake information. We talk about this all the time because we don't want to just react to the news. We want to discern the news. We want to analyze it. We want to take it and apply it and understand what's going on. This is a perfect time to recalibrate your news feeds for the coming 2024 elections because they're going to be loud. They're going to be messy. We have the Donald Trump factor. Nobody knows what's going to go on there. We have a lot of stuff going on, a lot of overseas stuff. President Biden, people have strong opinions. This is the time now, not next October, to calibrate your 2024 election. Here's what I would encourage you to do. So we have really big elections. We have ballot initiatives in Ohio on things like abortion and marijuana. We have Virginia, which is a real uh, state of interest to a lot of politicos for a lot of reasons. Glenn Youngkin won the governorship. That kind of surprised some folks. Now the Democrats have taken the House of Delegates and the Senate back. This was an off-year election. Again, remember, Trump's not on the ballot. Biden's not on the ballot. A little different thing. But Virginia is an interesting state to look at. So people looking at that, they actually, the Republicans actually overperformed Trump in 2020 and still lost because of the dynamics on the ground. Things like that to discuss. Andy Brashear, the governor out in uh, Kentucky, won Democratic governor out there. There's a lot of school board races that got national attention, like out in Iowa, because of debate over groups like Moms for Liberty, who did very, very poorly with their candidates. They had one win, but most of the rest didn't even get in the top two or three. All of these things, however you feel about them, step back and look at all of it in the aggregate for a minute. And I want you to think about it this way. 
when you're looking at people covering these elections, Virginia is a great example because a lot of them are using the Glenn Youngkin narrative from a couple of years ago and just reapplying it to this race, and that's how they're looking at it. Use this race as an opportunity to calibrate 2024, and here's how you do it. Things like Virginia, things like Kentucky, things like the abortion issue. Are people analyzing and explaining what happened now in a way that explains what's going on, or are they just making everything that is going on fit into their priors and saying the same thing they said last election for this election, and we'll say the next thing the same next election. Let me walk through that a little bit better. If they're saying the same thing every election, if no matter what information they get, if they just have the same narrative over and over and over again, they're not analyzing. They're not giving you information. They're narrativizing. They're giving you a narrative. And the narrative is never going to change because all the information that comes in is just going to once again present their priors and tell them, oh, this is what this means. Therefore, if all you ever think about is Donald Trump, every election is about Donald Trump no matter what. Donald Trump has tremendous influence, but not every election is about him, especially ones where he's not on the ballot. Glenn Youngkin in Virginia is a good case of this. How much of this was Glenn Youngkin? How much of it was not? Well, it depends, but you always want to be really careful in an election analysis talking about something that was not specifically on the ballot. Yes, there's application there, but that might not be the interpretation of it. Here's the thing about analysis whether it's politics or statistics or how you view your home or your sports teams or whatever, are you taking new information and adjusting your position to fit the new information? If people are just talking about their priors over and over again, talk radio, especially on conservative and on the right, if you turn on talk radio now, the same people have been saying the same thing for dozens of years, decades, some of them bigger names. They're saying the same thing. You already know what they're going to say about this election before you listen to it. You don't have to listen to it. You already know what they're going to say. So take the opportunity now to recalibrate on what we're going to take in in 2024. Start going through your social media feed, go through your news feeds, go through your subscriptions and your newsletters and everything else. If people are just saying the same thing about these election results that they said about the 2022 midterms or the 2021 off-year elections or the 2020 election or going all the way back to the 2016 election, then maybe you need to get some new folks in there. Maybe you need to intake some good information. Information is the key to understanding anything. Garbage in, garbage out. Remember folks saying that when you were a kid about intaking TV and vegetables and whatever else? It applies on our news feeds, too. If we're not taking in good information, then we've got no chance of properly discerning what's going to come. We need to understand not just who wins and loses in 2024, but why. And to do that, we need to properly align ourselves, calibrate, set ourselves up for success by understanding what happened in 2023. And if all you're talking about is 2020 or 2022 and 2024, you might miss some things you really need to know. This is how... Folks get real shocked and shaken on election nights. They get in their little information bubbles, and then they're really, really surprised when things happen. Let's take that Glenn Youngkin example again. A lot of folks were surprised when he won his governor race in Virginia, and now they're surprised that his party has lost both houses in Virginia. 
well, not really if you just slow down and pay attention. Terry McAuliffe ran a terrible campaign, and Glenn Youngkin had the good sense to pretend that Donald Trump didn't exist for the last three months of that race. And for some reason, Donald Trump played along and stayed out of it and kept away from it. Terry McAuliffe's bad campaigning had as much to do with Glenn Youngkin winning as Glenn Youngkin did, but people didn't take it that way. They took it like he was something special, and maybe he will be someday. We'll see. But Virginia is still a very, very contested state. It's kind of leaning blue, especially with Northern Virginia and the outsized influence of D.C. and the D.C. suburbs and so on and so forth. So this is kind of more a return to the meme. And it really shouldn't surprise you in Virginia if you were just paying attention a little bit. Same thing with places like Kentucky and Mississippi, where the governors, Republican in the Mississippi case, and Democrat in the Kentucky race. This shouldn't surprise you at all if you paid a lick bit of attention. It's what the polls said. It's what the trends said. It's what the electorate wanted. And here it is. If you're shocked and shaken at election results, it's usually because you missed some small details. But it's probably because we didn't properly calibrate our information ahead of time so that when we got ready to go count the votes and read the headlines, we knew what was going on. Start now. Take this 2023 election as an example to calibrate your stuff for 2024. Be prepared. Decide ahead of time how you're going to get this information because there's a lot of people that are going to lose their mind over 2024, and we don't have to be among them. We can make a decision to prepare now to only take in what we need to know to properly discern the times we live in, especially when it comes to election nights. More her tell right after this. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we brought Sarah Anderson back on from the R Street Institute. She is the criminal justice and civil liberties program person there. We've had her before. Glad to have you back, Sarah. Thanks for your time. Of course, Andrew. Thanks for having me on again. All right. We talked about it in our prep. We're going to try not to make too many puns here, but we're going to talk a little cannabis. Specifically, though, and, and this is serious. We'll have a little bit of fun with this. Let me Let me nutshell it this way. When you go to legalize something or more specifically partially legalize or decriminalize or whatever terminology you want to use when you have some states doing it some states not doing it local municipalities doing it other municipalities not doing it the federal laws are still into effect when you do anything piecemeal it becomes a hot mess and that's pretty much where we're at on some of this cannabis regulation and not just about cannabis or marijuana or whatever now, as you point out in reason, and we're going to link to the whole piece, this is affecting banking. We've already seen it affect law enforcement. This is a big, hot mess. 
That's right. Um, you brought up the exact point that we talk about all the time, which is called the dual legality of cannabis between the federal government and the 38 states that have some form of legalized cannabis. It creates confusion for the public. It creates confusion for law enforcement. And there's just a number of steps that we need the federal government to take to recognize the current landscape of cannabis in the country. And like you mentioned, one of those is making the um, banking atmosphere and banking environment for cannabis businesses that are legal in their states legal to um, bank as well. We saw the ridiculous case last year. The truck driver gets pulled over. He had hemp. He didn't even have full-blown cannabis. And he gets whacked with a trafficking charge because the law enforcement local guys, they just didn't understand the difference. Imagine now, folks, that you're going to do this with people's bank accounts. And we know all the enormous power the federal government and investigatory agencies have once they have some kind of a warrant to get into your bank records, ask anybody that's dealt with the IRS and an audit what they can do to your life. This is a very practical thing. People think that, you know, marijuana or cannabis legislation is just about, you know, the guy on the corner wanting to mm -hmm. smoke his joint and be left alone. Or like, God bless you, my glass guy I saw at the farmer's market this weekend that makes me my little turtles, who's just the happiest dude you ever met in your life because he's higher than a bad haircut on a giraffe. This has some real world consequences when you start talking about banking regulation, legality, the law getting into your bank accounts. Mm -hmm. This has some very serious consequences to people in places where it shouldn't legally have bearing. Is that what's happening? That's right. And I think the real point to get at here, and this is what I talk about in my piece and reason that you're mentioning, is the issue with the federal government not allowing, since banks are regulated by the federal government, we know this, there's banks um, in 38 states that are not allowed to service state legal cannabis businesses because those cannabis businesses are still operating illegally as far as the federal government is concerned. The federal government still has cannabis as a Schedule One substance, meaning it's the maximal level of illegal you can have a narcotic at the federal level in the federal scheduling under the Controlled Substances Act, which means that banks being federally regulated are not allowed to offer their services to state legal cannabis businesses. And this is an issue, again, like you're saying, not just for the person on the corner who wants to smoke a joint, but in reality for the public safety of all communities where cannabis is legal in states. Um, what it forces, and this is what my piece talks about, is the uh, markup of the bill that would address this issue at the federal level called the Safer Banking Act was marked up in the Senate um, Banking Committee about a month ago now. And that in that markup, the senators from both the right and the left, Republicans and Democrats alike, acknowledge that it's a public safety concern that you have cannabis businesses in state legal states operating almost fully in cash because they cannot bank legally. Um, and that makes those uh, businesses, those communities, the millions of people who work at state legal cannabis businesses targets for crime, um, which is obviously not something we want to see in communities. Um, and again, a cash economy is great if you're a criminal. It is not great if you want to prevent crime. And so that's what this bill is trying to do. And it's just a step in the right direction to recognize that atmosphere. Yeah, Sarah Anderson joining us. You mentioned it. We did. We all made the jokes. I've made them. You probably made them. I know the folks at Reason made them because I follow them. Only the government could screw up drug dealing and not be able to turn a profit on it. However, you touch on one piece here. One of the reasons why it's not working is because the cost of running these businesses are so expensive because you can't get normal employees because the employees can't prove their income mm -hmm. because of what you're just talking about. It's an all cash business that makes them targets for people 
for criminal elements, for extortion, things like this. You can't have a normal business model because you can't declare the income through normal revenue. This is part of the reason it's failing. It's just basic business principles because of the way it is regulated or more specifically the way it is not evenly regulated. Right. And that's another public safety concern of not allowing cannabis businesses to bank and have them operate as normal businesses um, is exactly what you just mentioned, that folks who work there, which, again, millions of people work at state legal cannabis facilities and um, distributors. But the problem being that since they, again, operate in state legal structures only, they often have difficulty proving their income, which can lead to issues for just individuals in society in terms of securing housing, applying for other jobs, um, applying for education, the lack of ability to um, prove your full and normal income just due to the lack of having those, you know, stubs to your bank that talk about what your income level is, um, just makes it hard for people to operate in society in general. And so in addition to the cash only business affecting businesses themselves, communities with increased crime as a result of these businesses being targets for having mass quantities of cash on hand, um, it also creates problems for employees in that way. Yeah, Sarah Anderson joining us. It's interesting in your piece of reason. We're going to link to the whole thing. She's got a lot of links in here, too. You'll want to read. You want to read the Safer Act for yourself. You want to read the Hope Act that we're going to talk about in a minute. Read these things mm -hmm. for yourself. They're not complicated. Click all the links in there. Uh, Hertel.substack.com. We'll have all the linkage to this. You mentioned Nevada as, an, as a, an example, and I found this really funny. Look, I've lived in Vegas. I lived there for several years. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about a town that was built on an all-cash business. It's Vegas, <laughs> right? And we all saw, you know, casino, how that all works and how the skim works and all that. But you have the example there, Catherine Cortez Masto, the senator out there talking about, hey, we have the second highest legal cannabis sales in the nation. But as a cash only business, it makes it cumbersome and dangerous. If Nevada and, you know, Vegas is saying this and they're the experts on how to run cash only businesses, that seems to be a nice big red flag for me to sit down and pay attention. Like, OK, this is not working. Yeah, that's right. And I'm sure you know this as well as anybody else. But when you have something in Congress that's massively bipartisan, it's either something that's very, very good or very, very bad. Um, in this instance, it's certainly something that's very, very good. Um, again, allowing the federal government to acknowledge what it's allowed 38 states to do, which is have some form of legal cannabis. And again, there's sponsors of this bill from just like you mentioned, Catherine Cortez Masso of Nevada, as well as um, Chuck Schumer, obviously, is supportive of these types of measures as well. He's talked about it at length. Um, the sponsor from Oregon, Senator Jeff Merkley, also a Democrat. And then we had very vocally in the hearing just last month, Senator Steve Daines from Montana and Senator Cynthia Lummis from Wyoming, um, both of whom, especially Senator Lummis, made the, the note to say that Wyoming does not have legal cannabis and she likes Wyoming the way it is, but it does not mean that she can't support this legislation that's a common sense step for public safety. So that's exactly right. Yeah, Sarah Anderson, R Street Institute. You mentioned Chuck Schumer. Practically, legislation has to move and it's got to be pushed through. We know the House is a hot mess. We do finally have a speaker now, but they're going to have their hands full with the financial packages and mm -hmm. other things. Is this going to get through before an election year? Is this something that's going to go through the Senate? It's going to die and sit and then we're going to have this whole discussion again in 2025 and 2026. Right. So this legislation has passed the House um, multiple times, I believe, at this point over the past couple of Congresses. Um, and in the Senate has not come up for a vote. Actually, the hearing in the Senate Banking Committee was the furthest this bill has gone in the Senate thus far. Um, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has pledged to, if he brings up this legislation, to bring it up alongside expungement legislation, which is called the HOPE Act that you mentioned just a bit ago, um, that would 
facilitate states expunging cannabis records for things that people have done in the past that are simply no longer crimes in their state so those records can be cleared and people can go back and support their own um, law-abiding life that they've now chosen to lead while people are doing things that they had done years ago, which is no longer a crime. So hopefully if we see this bill come up, it would come up alongside something like that. That's again, another common sense step because we talk about barriers to housing, education, employment for folks who are working at state legal cannabis businesses. There's also a lot of barriers to housing, employment, and education for people with any criminal record. And especially those that are marijuana offenses that are no longer offenses in states, it makes sense to, to clear those records and give people a, a fresh start. Sarah Anderson, North Street Institute. She's writing in Reason in this particular place. All right, for the people that roll their eyes at the cannabis thing or they don't want to deal with decriminalizing or legalizing marijuana or they're just, look, there's a, you can be honestly skeptical about legalization of drugs. That's mm -hmm. a position that has merit and there are, yeah. If we put that aside though, we have a very universal principle of a lot of what's broken in our government right now is we have really badly written legislation that has been balkanized to the point that it's ineffective across the board, even the stuff that's well-meaning or well-written. Mm -hmm. This is an ongoing problem where when you legislate something, the states and the feds and the local municipalities and law enforcement and the citizenry and the business community, everybody got to be on the same page for a law to work effectively the way it's meant to. And this is a great example of what happens when you have the opposite of that. That's right. And I think two points to bring up there is one that no matter how you feel about the legalization of cannabis, Andrew, I think we can certainly agree there are many things in society that are legal that we don't recommend doing. Um, and if you don't support people's use of cannabis, it doesn't legalizing it and bringing it into the marketplace, bringing it above ground does not mean you endorse the use of cannabis or people's overuse of cannabis whatsoever. It simply is a, a step toward protecting public safety in the ways that we've talked about initially, but also in regard to law enforcement. Look, there's a super majority of the American public does not believe that cannabis should be illegal at all. And when you have law enforcement out there enforcing laws that the people don't agree with, it undermines police legitimacy, which is an issue we've talked about before as well. So not only is the dual legality of cannabis an issue for law enforcement, so too is the perception of the public that laws are being enforced that they don't agree with. So again, um, just like you said, this is about public safety. This is about people's uh, personal decisions in their life. And certainly the decisions of 38 states that have legalized some form of cannabis that the federal government has allowed to go forward and tacitly endorse without doing it explicitly, which has left a lot of these problems in place. So just like you said, um, this is a common sense step toward um, just recognizing the current landscape and allowing people to be safer tomorrow than they are today. Yep, and you end your piece talking about that landscape. We talked about it already. 38 straights directly already have legal uh, legislation or regulation about this. That impacts the other 12 indirectly because they all mm -hmm. got to work together some. You talk about having input on all parties. What's the future on this? Because we know polling-wise and public opinion-wise, there is that supermajority that's okay with this, but the government side of this is lagging. Some issues, the government's way ahead of the public. On this yeah. case, the public's way ahead of the government. What's the future of it? Are the twain never meant to actually meet or is there some hope for the future here? Where do you think we're going to go in the next couple of years with this debate? Not the online debate yeah. where we're just saying the same old thing, but practically speaking as a 
is it so bad now that they've got to clean up this legislation just out of force of habit if they've got to do something about it? Is that where we're going to get some progress or is it something else? Yeah, I think what our conversations frequently are, especially with folks on the right of center who are skeptical of public use cannabis, and like you've said, in many instances, rightly so, it's certainly not for everyone and it's certainly not to be overused. Um, but the the writing on the wall is not a is not a if cannabis will become federally legal. It's really a when cannabis will become federally legal and also how. And so that's why it's really important for folks who believe in the important duty of law enforcement to protect and serve, believe in the free market, believe in individuals' right to kind of prosper on their own without burdens in government, to really have a seat at the table in this to make sure that when the federal government does legalize cannabis, it does it correctly, um, pulls it off of the scheduling for the Controlled Substances Act, and especially, and you and I could go on about this for days, does not over-regulate and over-tax it in a way that allows um, black markets to continue, um, because then you haven't solved many of the public safety problems that you sought to solve in the first place. So it's not really an if, it's a when, and it's a how. And so that's why um, we've got a seat at the table and encourage other people on the right of center and who believe in freedom and free markets and individual liberties to do the same. See, even the terminology you just used, public use, that's a whole nother issue on top of all this, because I'm reminded of the Wire episode where Bunny Colvin's like, well, you're allowed to drink your beer in public as long as you put it in the paper bag and drink it. So we're going to do that with drug use, right? <laughs> Public use is a whole different thing than we're going to decriminalize it and you can use it privately. Those are the details, though, sure. because everybody's got it different in their head. You have to be specific about this. Like, are we going to have public use of this drug or are we just going to leave you alone if you do this in the privacy of your home? Right. Are you is it the uh, the Netherlands model where you can have it, you can use it, you just can't buy it and sell it publicly, that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. Those are the details where the devil really is with this sort of thing. And we gloss over those with the buzzwords. And that's right. kind of where we do a disservice to the issue, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And I think you bring up a really good point of there's a number of places that have decriminalized cannabis without legalizing cannabis, a lot of localities or states. And the issue there is it, it's um, your city can't make ordinances and regulations around something that's still technically illegal. And in some places where it's simply been decriminalized and not fully legalized, we've seen those issues with uh, regulating where and when people can use it. Um, and again, you don't want it to be overburdensome, but you also want to protect public safety and people's um, enjoyment of public places. So that's certainly a, a consideration we have as well. Yeah, Sarah Anderson's with the R Street Institute. She does excellent work with her. That's why we keep bringing her back on. We're going to do it again. This full piece is in reason who I've never got to publish with yet, despite a couple efforts. How you doing, guys? I'm still out here. Um, let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you. We're going to link to the whole piece. But until then, and we get you back on the program, let folks sure. know how to follow you, my friend. Sure. Again, I'm Sarah Anderson, the Associate Director of Criminal Justice and Civil Liberties at the R Street Institute. And you can find our work online at rstreet.org and also on Twitter at RSI. We enjoy our friends at R Street. They do all kinds of very diverse stuff, too. Very uh, heterodox stuff across a lot of lines. A lot of folks think always enjoy their work. Sarah, love talking to you. We'll have you back soon. Appreciate your time. Perfect. Thanks, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. Thank you.
Welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm going to re-up something we talked about a couple of days ago with the bol- Biden polling numbers came out and everybody had a freak out. Um, and again, there's lots of opinions on Joe Biden. Look, I know Joe Biden is the president. He's not super popular. He doesn't light the world on fire. He's not perfect for his own party as currently constituted. He became president running as not Trump. And a lot of folks, especially our Democratic friends, have had an absolute meltdown worrying that Trump's going to beat him. He's not going to beat him. When you put Trump on the ballot opposite him, you could put a blue painted fire hydrant up and people would still vote for it over Donald Trump. Just remember all those people who were freaking out so bad. And as we open the program today, talking about the election results, Democrats did very, very well. I want to pitch it to you this way. I'm on about my ninth or 10th most important light election of my lifetime. They keep throwing this away. People are living and dying on elections. Elections do not make the world go round. They don't even make the political world go around, really, because when you look at things like the makeup of Congress, how long people have been there, changeover is pretty slow. These things come in waves. They have patterns to them. You could argue everything that's happened in presidential politics has been reactionary, not movement-based. Trump won not being Hillary and being, you know, something different. Biden won not being Trump. Biden's probably going to win again not being Trump, and then we're going to have to do a bit of a reset and see what comes after that. But those are reactionary elections. They're not, you know, change-shifting, generational-shifting elections. I can mention a couple of elections that people have said meant generational change. Bill Clinton was going to be a generational change to young Democrats, and He promptly lost Congress to the Republicans right after that. Trump lost his majorities, and so did Obama. Both of them had trifectas coming in that quickly went back the other way. Don't get wrapped up in this stuff. The best way to view elections in the country, and this election is going to end the country. No, it's not. This election is going to be the end of democracy. No, it's not. Everybody settle down. Over time, you can have those things. Think of elections. And our coverage thereof here in the United States of America, especially in the year of our Lord, 2023, going into 2024, think of it being at the seashore. The waves come and go. They get a little higher sometimes, get a little lower. You have high tides, you have low tides, but they keep coming. There's going to be another election after this. The waves come and go. Now, over time, sure, those waves can erode the seashore some, But there's some things we can do about it. You can replace the sand. You can work it out. You can clean it up after a hurricane ditches it all out. Think about elections kind of like the seashore. Remember, you're standing on the land. The waves are going to come and go. How you see them depends on your perspective. If you wait out to your neck, the waves are probably going to get you and make it feel like it's a really scary thing. If you wait in about knee deep, though, it's very enjoyable. And I'd even say relaxing. If you stand on the shore, you can get a good perspective of something that's really amazing to watch. Democratic representational government in action, messy as it can be, violent as it can be, like waves can be violent. It's not clean. It's not awesome. But if you just watch it on the whole, kind of amazing to watch. Where you stand on the seashore changes your perspective of those waves coming in. You can't control the waves. They're coming no matter what. You can control where you stand. Work on that going forward. More Hurtel right after this. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. 
At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Love it. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. I've been talking to our good friend Gary and Frankel, who, despite our better judgment, we have let back on the program to talk about something that I don't want to talk about, but it's been all over social media. So we're going to get into it. Uh, Gary, great to have you back on the program, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. He's got a bunch of academic credentials down there in one of them Texas schools. We'll talk about that some other time, but that will be your bona fides, my friend. You don't have your uh, 30 spaghetti Western background on the video for those of you that's going to watch on the YouTube later. But we're going to talk some boots. You're down in Texas. You're a white 6th, 7th, 8th generation Chicano Texan. You know a little something about boots. This Ron DeSantis boot story, I hate it. I think it's stupid, and I don't care. Am I wrong? Uh, No, you're not wrong. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. It's utterly irrelevant towards who would make an effective administrator of a nation with 330 million people. And yet the Trump campaign's talking about it. The DeSantis campaign is scrambling to defend himself from the heinous allegation that he put lifts in his boots to make himself an inch or two taller. And of course, he got ostensibly very serious media outlets writing breaking news stories about this as if this will decide the future of the country. And it's all utterly absurd to me. Let me try to cut through this a little bit, because here's where I view it, because I don't have a dog in this fight other than just rolling my eyes. Like, do I really have to waste time on this? On the DeSantis side of it, 
there, there, there can be some legit criticism that he thought he was going to get away with this. Number one, two, the insecurity of it, and three, that he did it in the first place. You can, you, that's take it or leave it, whatever. Media wise, the thing is, this is a boring primary that's pretty much settled. Trump's up over twenty points in all the early states, so they're trying to find stuff to talk about. So it's a cell phone. You set yourself up for this kind of nonsense because if everything was going well in the polls and DeSantis was killing it in his rallies and he was up in the polls, nobody would be talking about this. But then the absurdity of it is most of this flag is coming from the Donald Trump wing of the party, which pick whatever lunacy, multiple indictments, craziness, affairs, various illegal and illegal activities. Pick whatever you want with Donald Trump for the hypocrisy argument there. Did I pretty much cut through all the nonsense of this? That's kind of all those things are just conflating here. And we've got a board media that really likes to holler about this kind of stuff. Yeah, pretty much. I think the one valid point that I have heard that would add legitimacy to this being a story at all is the idea that if DeSantis is willing to lie about something so fundamental about himself, then what else would he lie about once he is in a position of power? And I think that's a reasonable critique, but it operates under the assumption that politicians don't lie about things. And I would inquire or ask that person to name one politician currently running for president that isn't lying about something fundamental about themselves. It's, it's something they all do. Is it something that they should do? Probably not. But is it just a fundamental reality of a political system that operates on self-interest? Of course it is. And I just don't really see why this is a story that major media outlets feel the need to cover. I mean, well, from a profit motive, I, I understand it because they're making money off of all the clicks it's getting. But if you actually care about American democracy, as so many of these people claim to, why do you care about this story? Yeah, it's interesting bringing up Gary and Frankel joining us. You know, the current sitting president has hair plugs, a long history of lies, distortions, Joe Bidenisms. Oh, it's Joe being Joe, plagiarism scandals, all that. He lied. Look, I start with politicians lie, and then I'll be pleasantly surprised if they don't. Trump lies about everything. His predecessor, Obama, had some whoppers in there a couple different times. W had mistakes. Clinton lied about everything twice over, and then the media would praise what a great liar he was. You know, you can go down the list. I'm with you on that. I think this is a coverage story more than an actual they're lying story. Although, yes, I judge DeSantis for thinking the arrogance that he was going to get away with this is what kind of bugged <laughs> me about it. You hit a good point. The reason we cover this, though, is and this goes to a lot of stories that we're hearing in this election cycle. News is so nationalized. These races are so nationalized. You talked about it in your piece at the readout. We're going to link to the whole piece. Local journalism usually didn't do stuff like this. Yo local journalism, they would touch on it once in a while, but something like Ron DeSantis wears boots like this would have gotten covered 10 years ago by local journalism, and maybe it did, and I just don't know about it. I think the coverage, the nationalized coverage, we have a board media that needs to cover a couple more months of primary when nothing's actually happening in the primary. I think this is a coverage story, and you touched on it. This is how the coverage has changed. Monetization, like you mentioned. National monetization means more monetization, right? This is part of the thing. You touched on it in your piece. I think the real story is the coverage of this, even more so than the actual principles involved. I completely agree with you. I And the thing is, it's not 
anything new. I, I mentioned this in my piece a little bit, but Howard Dean's awkward scream in 2003 should not have nearly as much coverage as it actually did. A whole lot of other silly scandals throughout American history um, had considerably less coverage if you go back towards your point about local media. But even if you want to go back to the 90s, you have Phil Graham and his so-called scandal because he invested in one softcore porn film. It, it, it's nothing new, but it seems more ridiculous than usual because if you if you really stretch the Howard Dean story or the Phil Graham story long enough, you can find kernels of something important in there. In the Howard Dean story, maybe it's a warning against candidates projecting too much overconfidence after coming in third. Um, in the Phil Graham story, maybe the kernel there is, wow, evangelical social conservatives sometimes have skeletons in their closet. What's the kernel here other than that politicians lie and DeSantis might be insecure, which we already knew. I just, it, it's sad to me that the media is making money off of this because it says something about us as an electorate. I agree completely. Gary Frankel joining us. Here's where I would level something that I think we can actually have a teachable moment about here, though, with the DeSantis campaign. Look, I've said it, and let's use a sports reference here. Uh, you're a football fan of a team that, you know, let's be honest, has some ups and downs. I'll be gentle about that. My beloved Mountaineers are having a decent season. They're surprising me, thank God, but we got to play Oklahoma this week, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> but in sports, we talk about it all the time, whether it's especially basketball, especially baseball, the strike yeah. zone. We talk about it in football now. I did it online. We were talking about the targeting rules. Like, look, you got you to call it tight or call it loose, but tell me how to – you can't gripe about the refs. You can't gripe about the, how the game's going. You got to adapt to it, right? Yep. One of my criticisms of the not Trump candidates, whether it's Nikki Haley or in this case Ron DeSantis or whoever, you already know ahead of time you're not having a policy debate in the Oxford Union with Donald Trump. It's a food fight. It's personal. They're going to f find your little flaw and they're going to mock you relentless for it. That's the game. You can complain about it. You can whine about it, but that's the game you signed up to play. This is one of those things where I think the non-Trump people have still deluded themselves into thinking, oh, this is a policy discussion or this is an ideological discussion or we've got this soundbite on this you know, policy that we're going to. No, this is Donald Trump. This is a cult of personality you're facing. I don't. They said they were prepared for it. Their actions tell me they weren't prepared for it. And little stories like this. Again, I think this is a BS story. But it plays directly into that because, well, yes, that's all that's getting talked about. But you should have known that ahead of time and cleaned some of this mess up ahead of time because you knew that's what the Trump people are want to talk about. That goes to that coverage thing of it's a lot easier to monetize mocking somebody than getting into a housing policy or an immigration policy. That's just the truth of it. Yep. Uh, all, the all the incentives are just in the complete wrong direction. And to your point about how the non-Trump candidates have responded to the 2024 primary cycle, um, I think a lot of them, but I think this is especially true of DeSantis, are simultaneously way too online and also not online enough. They are too online in that they're not really responding to what primary voters are actually interested in or worried about or talking about. 
because it's all about who has the best memes or who's getting the most clicks. But on the other hand, they're simultaneously not online enough because, as you said, they have fundamentally, to a certain extent, misunderstood the nature of this campaign. This campaign is not going to be won, like you said, on discussions about housing policy. It's going to be won by who has the best arm accuracy when throwing a slice of pizza at someone's face. And I don't think any of them have a realistic chance of upstaging Trump until they realize that it's not 2004 anymore. You're not going to win a primary campaign based on substantive policy discussions in 2023. Gary Frankel joining us. Your piece in the readout, you touched on this, and I want to kind of hone in on just a little bit. You that that dichotomy you just talked about, the people that are too online, but they're not online enough in the right circles. I've got a little bit of a working theory on here. We currently have polling where everybody's freaking out about Biden's poll numbers for our Democratic friends and the centrist folks that, you know, those Trump to Biden voters that went to Biden when they got, you know, fed up with Trump. Everybody's freaking out about that a little bit. I got a little bit of a theory here, and I don't have the numbers to prove it. It's just from having done this for a little while. I think the normie voters that don't really follow politics just aren't paying attention to the primary at all. I think they're kind of in denial that Trump's going to win this because in their world, they're not following this day. They're like, well, of course, that guy can't win again. He's going to win the primary for the Republicans, and it's going to shock everybody and go, oh, my God, this guy's got a chance to win. And I think you'll see movement. I think a lot of people just aren't paying attention and it magnifies that small group of people that are way too online, which is you and me. Let's be honest. We're in that group because we do this. We magnify stuff because we're the only ones paying attention to it and there's nothing else out there. You talked about voter turnout when you're looking at teens and even single digits for things like municipal elections, city council elections. The Dallas mayor election was un is single digits. That's a shocking number. Help me here, professor, because you are a professor now. There's a disconnect there, but in my brain, very online but not online enough, the folks that don't pay attention until it's time to vote, low voter turnout, those three things all go together. Help me make that make sense because I think there's a truth in there that we need to wrestle with. I don't have any data to support it either, but I definitely think you're onto something. And it's only going to become more apparent once the calendar hits 2024, because you are going to have Trump trials right around Super Tuesday. There's going to be another round of them in October, I think. Once the primary is seemingly settled, there's going to be wall-to-wall -wall coverage. Trump, 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 Trump. And the normie voters are going to start responding to polls again. And once they do, I think the numbers are going to look considerably different just because I don't think there is a poll in the world right now that claims that Trump is up 11 in Nevada that actually reflects reality. Trump is not winning Nevada by 11. I, I don't know what the final number will be, but he's certainly not going to win by 11. But of course, the very, very online people, um, I would agree with you in that you and I are both very online, but I think 
you and I are also slightly, ever so slightly more tethered to reality than most. Um, but, the, but the people who aren't are going to go gaga over this for the next two months. Yeah, Gary and Frankel, let's let's bring this back to where we started with that right there, though. How these things are covered. Look, I'm looking at the calendar and some of these things, and look, I will be very surprised if Donald Trump actually goes to jail, but I do think he might catch some convictions in here somewhere. You you could have a conviction of Donald Trump right before Super Tuesday, or they're at. But if he wins those first four states, this thing's already wrapped up by Super Tuesday, by all accounts. You could have a case where he has uh, some of this criminal stuff's going to go past next year's inauguration day. This stuff's going to go for a while. Then you have the civil trial. Well, even if he loses the civil trial, there's no criminal penalty there. So it will be a sound bite, but he's not going to go to prison there. The Georgia thing's pretty messy. That thing may take time. It looks like it might even get delayed some more. We're just so off the map. Why is it so hard for pundits to just say we're really off the map here? Look, I, I know traditionally how I would cover this race, how I would look at Biden versus Trump and the politics of it. I think we need to have a little humility here and go like, no, 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 we're just way off the page here. We just talked about the voters. Voters are very reactionary. Um, we've seen that before. I think we need to just kind of step back and go, I don't know anybody really knows where this whole thing is going. We think we have some parameters of it. I think some humility is called for in punditry here over the next six to nine months as we start actually doing some voting. Absolutely. But I don't think many pundits are interested in having an honest discussion. They're interested in either um, one, making money, two, garnering clicks and attention for their devoted God, I mean, political figure of choice, um, or three, both. And because social media has magnified all the incentives that we would consider to be negative on all of those fronts, I think we're only going to see more pundits dive into this wave of chaos. Um, and I agree with you that there, there should be some humility here, but I think they care about the fame and the attention and the cash more than they do the principles they claim to espouse. Yeah, Gary and Frankel, let's wrap it up here. All those fancy letters after your name from the groves of academe involve education. Everybody agrees that voters sometimes aren't the most informed group in the world. If you could educate, because your background's education, if you could educate the American electorate, I mean the whole thing, not the primary voter, I mean just the average voter that's eligible to vote 200 million stronger than whatever that number is. What's the one or two things we should really educate people on? It's, I don't think it's the politics of it. I think there's some folks that just don't understand how the system works. I think there's folks that don't understand the levels to it, especially the municipal and local level stuff that they really have a lot of say in. Those races are all often decided by dozens or 20s of people instead of hundreds or thousands or millions like an election and nationally. Give me one or two things that you would educate the average voter on to make them a better, more informed voter. Not a political thing, just this is what you need to know about your vote in a general election or a municipal election or a primary election. Yeah, you mentioned one or two things. Two things come to mind immediately, and they both have the word federalist in it. Um, the first would just be basic federalism about what the different functions of government do, because I think a huge chunk of the elect the electorate doesn't realize that their most impactful vote 
is going to be for random city councilman number eight who decides who their trash vendor is going to be rather than anything that's happening in Washington. Uh, two, I would also introduce them to the Federalist Papers because I think they lay out some of the basic underlying principles behind American liberal democracy very, very well. And I think it would be give people, at the very least, a better idea of what they should be voting for and why, even if they actually don't. I mean, worst case scenario, at least those ideas are cycling around in there somewhere. Um, but I think both of those things, especially the former, would help a lot in terms of just making people see what really matters. Gary and Frankel, he does great work. He's Young Voices contributor. has written everywhere, major publications, but he's become a good friend to our program. We love to have him on. We're going to have you back to talk about your bailiwick education soon because i got a couple of education things that are just chewing on me, something fierce. Let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep up with you, where they can get your red-hot Texas techs. <laughs> Takes, takes, takes. It sounds like I'm from Texas Tech on that one. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you. Always be again, my friend. Yeah, I'm most active on Twitter or X or whatever the heck it's called now. Uh, Y'all can follow me at F-R-A-N-K-E-L-G-A-R-I-O-N. Any Aggie jokes you've heard good lately? Uh, No, just sadness and depression that we paid however million, million dollars, millions of dollars for a coach that can't win. Can we? I think we're going to have this whole subgenre of Texas A&M Aggie jokes that are just Jimbo Fisher jokes. Is that? Do you think that's going to be accurate? So instead of how many Aggies to screw in a light bulb, it's going to be you know, Jimbo. How many Jimbo Fisher play calls or whatever? What do you think? <laughs> it's definitely happening. We we never should have extended him. Um, I'll be happy if we win eight games a season at this point, just because I think he's the most conservative coach in college football, and not in a good way. Uh, I think he's one of those coaches that's a good coach, but he got elevated to great coach because he had some great players. Yeah. And when you didn't have the great players and the great staff, he had a really good staff too. A lot of those guys are heads now. I think that's one of those things. But I like Jimbo the guy. Yeah. I think he's one of those guys that we over-elevated because he had that one shining moment. He's not a he's not a Nick Saban that can reinvent himself four times over, that sort of thing. It's just it is what it is. By the way. All you Texas A&M fans and others, we just did our mental health episode a couple of days ago. That'll be linked. You can go in there maybe look. We give therapy through laughter, my friend. Gary and Franco, love having you on, sir. Thanks for having me. And, I mean, I'm waiting for baseball season. We should be good this year. Yeah, hey, the Rangers did all right. That worked out okay. So, y'all keep it straight down there, buddy. We'll talk soon. Sounds good. Yes, sir. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Let's end on a good note. Let's go up to New York City. New York City. Yeah, New York City. 
This is a cool one. They're taking cans of food and making sculptures out of them. This is from Spectrum One uh, News, NY1.com. Uh, how do these architects of engineering make this happen? There are rules. You can use clear tape. You can use leveling boards. I'm reading from the piece here. You can use rods to hold things together. You just ideally don't see them, said Jennifer Green, founding committee member for the competition. It's supposed to be like a floating structure, and we'll link to all the pictures. It's really amazing. The competition for canned food sculptures was found by the late Sherry Malello and colleagues in the New York chapter of the Society for Design Administration. Green says the first competition had eight sculptures, and this year there are 28, eight more than last year. You take all these cans of food and you make these giant sculptures at them. And these are not just stacking things up. These are very impressive. Um, they have a canterfly, get it? Winnie the can, Winnie the poo. Canterfly would be like a butterfly, but made out of cans. Um, there's a construction at Brookfield Place, what has become the annual tradition in the downtown destination. Uh, there's one that Send they send off for the Metro card, which has now gone away, and a salute to 50 years of hip-hop. These are really cool. The most important part, and while we put it in the food part, admission is free to get in, but the constructions go to help the hungry. The constructions have donated more than 2 million pounds of food since it all started. 28 constructions this year. All the cans are donated to the City Harvest to help feed the hungry in the five bureaus. And since 1993, more than 1.2 million people in City Harvest have gotten meals from this program. Really cool thing. We'll stick it on the herdtail.substack.com notes. It'll also be on the show notes. Listen, you're listening to iTunes, who don't let us do links. So you can find those. Make sure you check it out. Actually, really creative stuff um, that you can see. The person who did the MetroCard uh, kiosk, uh, really did a New York thing there. Check all that out. That'll do it for Tell. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you and yours are across the street or around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you again real soon for more Tell. All the music on Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. 
Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.